There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. My heart. Is with this eight-year-old little boy. I don't. I don't care if he was here legally. I don't care if he was here illegally. He was in my county. Five people died in my county, and that is where my heart is. Yet another gun rampage. This time in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, who has done much to boost the NRA culture of guns before kids in that state, wasted no time reducing the murder victims, including a nine-year-old child to, quote, illegal immigrants. Also tonight, E. Jean Carroll was back on the witness stand today, facing cross-examination about her allegation that Donald Trump raped her. And where was Trump? Well, he was 3,000 miles away in Scotland, digesting the news that the judge had rejected his motion for a mistrial. And Roy Wood Jr. is here to talk about his best zingers against Clarence Thomas, Tucker Carlson, and the president himself at this weekend's White House Correspondents' Dinner. But we begin tonight with America's gun crisis on full display once again with unimaginable horror in Texas. On Friday evening in Cleveland, Texas, five people were shot to death, including a nine-year-old boy. The suspect had been firing a semi-automatic rifle in his yard when his neighbor, Wilson Garcia, asked him over the fence to stop so his baby could sleep. According to authorities, the suspect responded that he would do whatever he wanted at his house. He then went into his home grabbed an AR-15 rifle. The doorbell camera captured him walking over to Garcia's home, where he shot and killed five people. Here are the five victims from left to right. Diana Velasquez Alvarado, 21. Garcia's nine-year-old son, Daniel. And Garcia's wife, Sonia Guzman, 25. Julissa Molina Rivera, 31. And Jose Jonathan Cesares, 18. The gunman shot them in the head, execution style. Two of the women who were killed were found with their bodies laying across the children whose lives they saved. The gunman is still at large. Soon after, a different, soon after that, a different type of carnage emerged, the moral kind. When Governor Greg Abbott, in a press release about the shooting rampage, described the victims as illegal immigrants, to use a massacre in which five people, including a child, were slaughtered execution style to score political points and demonize immigrants— is a sickening new low for this governor and his party, who love guns, but not so much children and immigrants. And Governor Abbott, what you said is vile and gross, and it may not even be true. We actually do not know the victim's immigration status. Not that it matters, because human lives, brown or white, American or not, deserve protection and empathy. It's actually a governor's job, your job, Governor Abbott, to ensure their safety. But under your leadership, Governor Abbott, Texas has become a killing field. Some of the deadliest mass shootings have taken place in Texas, including in Uvalde, where 19 children and two adults were killed despite the presence of 317 police officers. And it is you, Governor Abbott, who has pushed for dangerous policies that weaken your state's gun crime laws, 
You signed permitless carry into law in 2021, less than two years after mass shootings in El Paso and in Odessa, which left 30 people dead. And while you are obsessed with demonizing Latino migrants and the border boogeyman, which you have called an invasion, no racism there, I'm sure, and you blame President Biden for that so-called invasion, you, Governor Abbott, have ignored an actual invasion, the invasion of death culture into your party and into your state. Like how in an average year, nearly 4,000 people die by gunfire in Texas. And your state's gun laws, which are so weak, a person can buy a gun and carry it concealed in public without even passing a criminal background check or taking firearms training. Texas even allows some staff and teachers to carry firearms into K-12 through schools, not that that helped the kids in Uvalde. Which brings us back to the border, the one that you, Governor Abbott, wants to wall up to stop the flood of migrants and drugs. But you know what's really flooding through that border? And not in the direction that many would assume? Guns. From the U.S. into Mexico. Because you see, Mexico has only one gun store. And it is located inside a heavily guarded military base in Mexico City. Per the L.A. Times, you need months of background checks and six documents plus frisking to even go inside. And Mexican nationals can only purchase a single pistol for self-protection. That poses quite the challenge for Mexican criminal gangs and cartels. Which makes lax gun laws in Texas so appealing to criminals across the border. Per The Guardian, Mexican cartels can drive to any Texas gun shop and legally stockpile guns. Another indication that guns flow into Mexico from the U.S. is that AR-15s are banned in Mexico, but are often recovered at Mexican crime scenes. America's weak gun laws don't just hurt Americans. They're also helping Mexican drug cartels get their hands on weapons overseas that are banned in their own country. Maybe we should build that wall after all but to protect Mexico and have Greg Abbott pay for it. The suspect in Friday's shooting, whose name is Francisco Oropesa, and who again is still on the loose, is a Mexican national who wouldn't have been allowed to purchase an AR-15 in his home country, meaning the only way that he could even pull off this massacre is because here in America and in Greg Abbott's Texas, AR-15s are plentiful, as are the funerals. Joining me now is Julian Castro, who served as U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Obama, and Angela Farrell Zabala, who recently became the first ever executive director of Moms Demand Action um, for, uh, for grassroots, uh, I'm sorry, for grassroots of Every Town for Gum Safety, the first African-American director, I should yes. say, because there have been other directors, but you are yes. the first African-American director. Um, but I am going to go first to Julian Castro, if you don't mind. I normally would do ladies first, but this is your state, um, Julian. Um, your thoughts on your governor, instead of focusing on the dead, including a little boy, deciding to use this as a fresh opportunity to demonize brown migrants. This is the M.O. for today's Republican governors in so many states. Uh, today in the Republican Party, if you want to be taken seriously as a potential national candidate, you have to show how cruel and inhumane that you can be towards certain vulnerable people, including immigrants. And uh, it takes your breath away how dehumanizing people like Greg Abbott are toward uh, immigrants. In you know, He says, I'm going to put out a $50,000 reward in one breath as if he cares. 
and then in the other simply labels them as illegal immigrants. Not only that, Joey, he had to actually backtrack today, a spokesperson from his office, because at least one of those people uh, was here in the country legally. Uh, and, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about their immigration status. And I was really happy at least to see the sheriff of that county, Sheriff Capers, say that that doesn't matter. We're talking about five people who were murdered, including a little boy. On top of that, as you noted, this is a governor who has gone out of his way to make it a shoot first, ask questions later kind of state, a permissive gun culture, the wild, wild west where anything goes, anybody can get a hold of a gun, refuses to increase the age limit for getting these assault weapons from 18 to 21, much less banning assault weapons, doesn't want universal background checks went back on a promise that was made by Republican leadership to do something after uh, more than 20 people were slaughtered in El Paso at that Walmart four years ago. And so there is hypocrisy, there is cruelty, there is politics all combined into this deadly brew in my home state of Texas. You know, and it's arguable, um, Angela, that he doesn't care. I mean, the Uvalde parents have come forward and said, please do something. Right? They have asked to have the age for purchase of semi-automatic rifles raised from 18 to 21. He doesn't care about that. And it's not it's not just Texas. I mean, Nikki Haley. Her new fresh idea, other than demonizing Joe Biden's age, um, apparently she's allowed to do that. No one's allowed to say anything about her, but she can do that, um, is to come out and pose with a gun as if she's a female warlord. This is like the new thing that they do. And the statistics say that the South is actually the da most dangerous part of the United States. Let me read you a little bit from Politico. And it's not even close. The South is by far the da most dangerous. After Uvalde, Greg Abbott swatted back suggestions that the state could save lives by implementing tougher gun laws, by proclaiming Chicago and L.A. and New York disprove that thesis. In reality, the region the Big Apple comprises most of is far and away the safest part of the U.S. mainland when it comes to gun violence. While the regions Florida and Texas belong to have per capita firearm death rates, homicides and suicides that are three to four times higher than New York's. On a regional basis, it's the southern swath of the country where the rate of deadly gun violence is most acute. Regions where Republicans have dominated state governments for decades. It's the South and it's the guns, period. That's right, it, it's definitely a guns. And this is a uniquely American problem. We are talking about having this being the leading cause of death in our country now for kids and teens. It's absolutely ridiculous, the leading cause of death. And while I do agree that in these southern states, we have some issues, we definitely have to address and make sure that we're not weakening gun laws. We know stronger gun laws can save lives. One thing that I'm really feel positive about is that we also have a lot of activism happening. Unfortunately, we have a country of survivors, but those survivors are turning their pain into purpose and standing up. I was just in Austin, Texas, a couple months ago with some of our volunteers, and I had an opportunity also to be with the families in Valde. And the fact that they are showing up in their pain to make sure that they're pushing their elected officials to do the right thing and take care of Texans in that case. And really, we're doing this across the country. So, yes, I would say this is something we have to look at as far as our southern states. We have to look at how they're politicizing this issue when the American public want to see stronger gun laws. And, and it isn't that there's something, Julian Castro, that is unique about the South in terms of villainy, right? There are mental health issues in the North, the South, the East, the West, in Europe, in Canada. Canada, it, you know, in the Caribbean. But the southern states are almost entirely governed by Republican legislatures and or Republican governors. And they are systematically weakening gun laws in those states. There's a reason that New York City is 
the safest big city in America. Strict gun laws. <laughs> you, you just can't carry a gun into the Walmart. Right. So you I'm not afraid. I'll be honest. I am not afraid to go to a mall in New York. I am deathly afraid to go to a mall in a state like Virginia or Texas or Florida. I wouldn't because people can walk around with guns. And in a state like Florida, where they're trying to make it easier during spring break, are, are, are people even sober walking around? You're saying anybody get a gun and walk anywhere you want in Texas into a mental institution. You can take a gun. This is but it's it's madness. And it's so it, it is not that the South is somehow uniquely a bad place. It's that they have uniquely weak gun laws. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. I mean, how many hints do we need that it's the guns? I mean, we keep seeing over and over that it is the guns and the data bear out that uh, where you relax gun laws like this, you see more of these incidents. What's happening in Texas, Joy, is it really is setting up this culture of shoot first and solve your problems later. And as you mentioned, uh, you have people that are more worried now, of course, about their kids when they go to school. Uh, you have folks that have to look you know, behind their shoulder when they go into big events or into a mall. Uh, or now think about what the reaction is going to be from their neighbor when they go and you know say, hey, can you keep the noise down or can you cut your grass or uh, something else that might cause conflict? You mix that with people drinking alcohol, everything that goes into daily life that in and of itself is not evil or necessarily bad. But when you combine that with guns everywhere, with permitless carry, with these laws that make no sense, including putting them into the hands of people that never should have gotten them in the first place, this is what you get. And the thing is, it's not going to get uh, it's not going to decrease. This is only going to increase. There are going to be more victims. There are going to be more families that are mourning those victims. There are going to be more survivors that are going to have to deal with the lifelong trauma and life-changing circumstances of these incidents. And so uh, at the end of the day, there needs to be a greater and greater sense of urgency among all of us, especially in these red states, but also among legislators to change these laws. I mean, after, you know, what happened in uh, Sandy Hook, Connecticut passed stronger gun laws. It's a safer state now. Colorado, you know, they have passed stronger gun laws. They just passed more. I mean, it's not that complicated. And young people, as you said, are really leading this in the South, in places like Tennessee, in places like Texas. Young people are fat it. They're tired of having to grow up as being the mass shooting generation, and they are taking action. But talk about this. I mean, you are the first African-American uh, leader of every town. And, in you know, for black communities, there is a disproportionate set of, de you know, death by gun violence, right. uh, as it is, both in this country and, by the way, in the Caribbean where we have exported extraordinary amounts of guns. They don't get them in Jamaica and in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Those come from here. And they're killing a lot of black people overseas in the Caribbean, a lot of brown people in Central America, in Mexico. Those are American guns killing people all over our hemisphere. Talk about your unique position in trying to be an advocate both for gun safety and for um, the collective community of people of color as well. Well, I'm happy to step up in a time when this is a public health crisis in this country. And you're absolutely right, Joy. It disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. And I'm happy to step in. But I have to say I'm standing on big shoulders. Not only do we, Shannon Watts, who was a founder of Moms of Man Action. Yes, we love Shannon. But also black and brown women that have been doing this for decades in their communities. We often see in the news some of these the most horrific scenes when we think about mass shootings. By the way, more mass shootings have happened than actual days in the calendar year at yeah. this point in time, which is ridiculous. But what we have to also remember is that daily gun violence plagues our communities as well, and it's felt. 
by black and brown communities in particular. So I think this representation matters. And so me stepping up in this time where we have a movement, not only that Shannon has helped to spark with our volunteers and students and survivors across the country, but black and brown women and communities that are doing this good work. So I'm here to roll up my sleeves and continue to move us to a place where we can live without the fear of violence. Yeah, the fear of going to school, to a concert, right. to the mall, you know, to a p- parade, to the supermarket. Maybe people will wake up and listen when other countries start telling their tourists don't come here because it isn't necessarily safe to go to Austin, to go to Miami, to go to Virginia Beach because everyone's got guns everywhere. I, I trust me, people from overseas, I have relatives that live overseas. Yeah. They do not understand this country and why we are willing to live with constant fear of being shot dead everywhere, including in school or in your house, now in your home. That's right. Julian Castro, Angela Farrell Zabala, congratulations thank again. Thank you. Uh, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, Trump's attorney tries to get the judge to declare a mistrial in the Manhattan rape trial, uh, in his Manhattan rape trial. And we'll see how that went over when The Readout returns. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Writer E. Jean Carroll was back on the stand for a third day in her civil trial against Donald Trump, alleging that he raped her inside a New York department store in the 1990s. It was the second day of cross-examination for Trump lawyer Joe Tacopina, and he continued where he left off last week, trying to find inconsistencies in her story and attacking her credibility to convince a jury that Ms. E. Jean Carroll's claim is unbelievable. Just hours before the trial began for the day, Takapina filed a new request for a mistrial with U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan, accusing that same judge of, quote, pervasive, unfair and prejudicial rulings that he claims were in favor of Trump's accuser. Among his list of complaints, Takapina took issue with the judge shutting down his questioning when he pushed Carol about why she did not scream, why she didn't tell police or attempt afterwards to seek security camera footage from the department store. He also claims that the judge mischaracterized evidence in favor of Carol, as well as bolstered her testimony. The judge denied the Trump team's request. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. And you were in the courtroom today. Um, What was the basis for the denial of the mistrial? I mean, did he just simply say, I did none of those such things? He didn't even say that, Joy. He basically said, with respect to the filing that was made before me early this morning, the motion is denied. Oh. Okay, Mr. Takapina, take your witness. (laughs) Moving on. So let's talk about um, the a couple of the sort of elements in the room. Uh, One of them is that Donald Trump isn't there. He's in Scotland doing his thing. He was on his golf course. I think we have video of him doing that. Does does that seem significant or is that somehow being played up in the trial in any way that Trump isn't? We don't know if he's not going to come at all, but it doesn't seem that he is. You know, I have to say 
I don't feel the absence of Donald Trump there because the focus has really been entirely on E. Jean Carroll. She is the dominant figure in that courtroom, not Joe Takapina, not her lawyers. It's really Carroll commanding the courtroom and including the judge, the judge, the jurors, the observers, the lawyers. Everyone's attention is focused on E. Jean Carroll. Interesting. So let's talk about E. Jean Carroll. Some of the things that uh, Joe Tacopina tried to sort of take her apart on. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that she watched The Apprentice mm -hmm. um, and tweeted about The Apprentice. Um, the fact that, you know, the not screaming part, I think, is so horrendous that I, 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 I don't know where, where he's going with that. Um, the fact that she declared herself a fan of the show. Um, how did she respond to things like that? You know, I thought that some of her admissions, Joy, only made her more credible. So, for example, she said she had been a massive fan of The Apprentice. She had never seen a competition show like that. And that she wasn't all that bothered by seeing Donald Trump on camera, that it wasn't until 2015 when he declared for president and his face was suddenly everywhere that she really had to confront what it meant to sort of get used to seeing him constantly. Right. And so the, and, and she talked about sort of the Me Too movement sort of changing the way she thought, because she was also apparently at the uh, Takapina attempted to impeach on the fact that she was an advice columnist. Mm -hmm. And when people would write in advice about sexual assault, mm -hmm. she didn't advise. She advised them to go to the police and she yeah. didn't. Multiple How would times she respond over. to that? You know, one of the things she said, I think it's important to understand aging Carroll in the context of who she is generationally. Mm -hmm. She today, in testimony that was struck for being prejudicial, said, I'm part of the silent generation. And so she was very clear to say, the advice that I gave is the advice I know to be the right advice. And yet, I was raised to be docile and compliant and accommodating and not make a scene. And I would never, ever, ever call the police essentially to say, look, look, I'm a product of 1943 when yeah. I was born. And generationally, I still fit into that, even though professionally I accomplished things that were sort of unheard of for women of my age. And she also testified, did she not, that friends told her, don't do it. He'll destroy you. Yeah. There were one, one friend in particular, Carol Martin, who is a groundbreaking journalist, essentially said to her, Eugene, you can't go to the police. Donald Trump has hundreds of lawyers he will destroy you. Yeah. And, and he's trying to do, very, do, do that very yeah, thing. Absolutely. Uh, also an attempt to impeach her on shopping at Bergdorf Goodman, as if she should never go back into the store. Right. As if a real trauma victim avoids being re-traumatized. And that's where he was going with The Apprentice, too, right? Okay. If you were a real trauma victim, you wouldn't go back to the scene of the crime. Instead, you wouldn't have bought 23 gifts there between 2000 and 2018 as records you produced in this case show. If you right. were a real trauma victim, you would have avoided seeing Donald Trump on screen instead of admitting on Facebook that you were a massive fan of The Apprentice. Right. And Eugene Carroll essentially said, I was raised to grin and bear it, to put my chin up and put myself back together. Sort of avoiding places or television shows just wasn't in my nature. And, and last question, where was the jury looking during her, during this back and forth? Were they focused on Takapina or on E. Jean Carroll? It's a little bit like watching a tennis match, Joy, right? <laughs> the, the jurors are kind of like this the entire time. But I would say largely their focus was on E. Jean Carroll throughout yeah. today. And she held up fairly well under pretty intense questioning. Thank you so much, Lisa Rubin. I appreciate you being in the courtroom, being our eyes and ears as there are no cameras there. Thank you very much. Thank much you. appreciated. All right, coming up, America held hostage. Republicans demand huge cuts to social programs in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. The latest on Kevin McCarthy's tone-deaf demands. Straight ahead. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console 
Gone solely. Smart thermostat. Set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I think it is really important that I talk to you tonight about the looming crisis that could soon pummel the U.S. economy because the consequences will affect all of us. House Republicans have confirmed that they are willing to push the economy off a cliff for political leverage. In plain terms, they are refusing to raise the debt ceiling, which is basically just paying for bills that they and the Trump White House largely racked up unless Democrats in the Biden White House agree to deep cuts to our future budget. Simply put, they are taking America's economy hostage and saying that after a four-year Christmas spending spree under Trump, they will stop paying the nation's credit card bill unless Biden agrees to play Scrooge in future Christmases. And what do the House Ebenezer's want to cut? Well, you might think they would want to look at defense spending since so many of them are all up in arms about funding Ukraine and the woke military. But no, 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 that is the untouchable third rail. Instead, they want to kill large chunks of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which means spending on the environment and transportation, you know, the bridges, tunnels, electric cars, that sort of thing. And guess who they think should bear the brunt of these cuts? The poor, of course, since their bill targets programs for them. The House Republican bill that the media credited as a McCarthy win would add work requirements to Medicaid and expand current work requirements for the food stamp program and the temporary assistance for needy families program. The work requirements would cause some families to lose monthly food benefits or lose health coverage if the person receiving Medicaid were to become sick and be unable to work. That would leave our most vulnerable with zero income or government support. The financial service Moody's called the Republican proposal a stinker because it would effectively lay off 780,000 Americans, which would also so which would also slow economic growth. It is a dangerous time to be playing these kinds of political games. Because a default, or even the threat of a default, could trigger global panic at a time when our, when our economy is fragile. House Republicans claim they're doing this in the name of fiscal responsibility, but then you might ask why they raised the debt ceiling three times under Trump with no preconditions while spending continued to soar. A debt ceiling is like giving your child a credit card, and they charge the limit all the way up. Would you just raise the limit? No, you would well, sit down. Well, the men playing with America standing at fa full faith and credit of U.S. government debt, but if, I feel if like you can deal with the spending in other ways, oh, which really? is totally so, legitimate. So if you just raise the debt ceiling, do you think $31 trillion of debt, the CBO has come out in the next 10 years, do you know we'll pay 10.5? You did it three we'll times in the Trump 10, administration. As we did economic changes. As we did economic changes. You know what those economic changes were? They were tax cuts to the wealthy, <laughs> which added roughly $2.3 trillion to the little kid's credit card, the debt. The only difference this time is that a Democrat is president, and Republicans have a history of messing with the debt ceiling under Democratic presidents to score political points. Bottom line, 
The House bill is going nowhere in the Senate because President Biden, congressional Democrats and most analysts agree that the full faith and credit of the U.S. government is not up for negotiation. It is now up to Kevin McCarthy to come up with an acceptable off ramp fast. The question is, how can he do it? How can he do it with the so-called moderate Republicans when they only answer to MAGA extremists? Well, we're about to find out. Late this afternoon, President Biden Biden invited all four congressional leaders, House Speaker McCarthy, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to the White House next week to discuss how to avoid a debt default. Joining me now is Congressman Rokana of California. It is it is hilarious to me when Republicans say it's like giving your kid a credit card. They were the kid for four years. They, they spent the money and now they don't want to pay the bill. Eight trillion dollars that Trump uh, racked up. Twenty five percent of the debt. But here here's the credit card bill and kids analogy. If your kids racked up credit card bills and credit card debt, who says I'm just not going to pay the company? <laughs> right. I mean, OK, so they can take your house and destroy your credit. <laughs> of course, you pay the bills. Right. It's the most common sense thing. And, and not only that, but the way that you would respond if, let's say, that was your only card. Let's say you racked up all of this credit card debt and you paid for needed expenses with the credit card and you had the opportunity to raise your credit limit so that you could still buy food. You could still pay bills. You would get an increased credit limit. That is what the U.S. does. Because we have good credit, we're able to get a credit limit increase. That is all that's being asked for. And to your point, they racked up most of that debt by giving the super rich a massive tax cut. And they don't have a problem with that. First of all, you'd pay your bills, you'd get the money, as you said, and then you'd have a conversation, right? If you're part of a family, do you say, okay, it's my way or the highway, here's what we're going to cut, and you tell your kids and your spouse that's what you do? Of course you don't. You sit there and you discuss. That's what this president is saying. He's saying, look, let's pay our bills, then I will have a conversation about how we reduce our deficit. Kevin McCarthy doesn't want that. He wants to take hostage the entire Congress unless you get exactly his bill. What if Nancy Pelosi had done that? What if we had said, unless you give us Medicare for all, unless you give us Green New Deal, President Trump, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. Of course, we didn't don't do that because we're responsible because we believe in compromise when it comes to the functioning of the government. They're acting irresponsible. And a lot of your base probably would like it if you we all had done that. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about the, there, there needs to be a clean debt limit increase. That's just dumb what Kevin McCarthy is trying to argue. But in a actual budget negotiation. What would Democrats be willing to put on the table? Because the reality is we do need a Green New Deal. We do actually need to do more on climate. We do actually need things like, you know, preschool, you know, subsidized preschool, the things that got cut out of the bill when the big infrastructure bill went through. How do those things get done? Well, let's start with the fact that most of the debt historically has been racked up with Republican presidents. Bill Clinton left us with a budget surplus. Here's what happened after that. We went into these overseas wars that racked up a lot of money. We had the Trump tax cuts for the very wealthy. We had the Bush tax cuts for the very wealthy. If we just start by repealing the tax cuts to the very wealthy and, and we stop a lot of these overseas wars and we don't have a defense budget that gets to a trillion dollars. Yeah, why doesn't defense ever get cuts? I, I don't know. And, and have you ever noticed, Joy, that when we speak about defense, we talk about a one-year spending, it's going to be almost a trillion dollars. But when we talk about the IRA, 360-some billion, that's, right. over, that's over 10 years. Yeah. We're, we're going to do 10 trillion almost over 10 years. And who would, I mean, in this bill, we're talking about cutting things like SNAP. You're talking about cutting food stamps, Meals on Wheels. Why, are Repu why do Republicans think it's good politics to go after elderly people, people who could get sick and then can't get Medicaid? So you're saying now on top of being sick, now you lose your Medicaid. And what, what do they expect to happen to those people? They're hoping people don't pay attention to the details. Yeah. But 
you know, that's what we, our job is. To, the cuts are for veterans health care. Twenty two percent cut for veterans health care. Oh, that part of military spending they can cut. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, the, the, so that you can actually get an appointment at the VA. I mean, that's what this is going to mean for veterans. Less appointments, longer wait times. Yeah, they're cutting K through 12 education, early childhood education, food stamps at a time the economy is, is going is slowing, is going through tough times, and you're going to take away food stamps. By the way, there was a great study, USA Today, that if you have work requirements, it does nothing to actually yeah. increase work. All it does is take food away from people, which they may need to get back to Whereas work. Whereas SNAP boosts the economy because it all gets spent at Walmart and at stores. I, I want to do I did, I, a little side issue I want to talk to you about. You had a back and forth on the Twitters uh, with one Vivek Ramaswamy, who currently is boasting about getting, uh, who was the only African-American uh, anchor in this business before I joined him uh, in Prime uh, at CNN, Don Lemon. He's boasting about getting him fired. He thinks that is somehow going to be a big, uh, you know, flag for his uh, run for president. Your thoughts on him, because you've been back and forth with him online. You know, when he first started, I thought, OK, here's an Indian American. Funny name. We disagree. Hopefully he he, he makes a good, good uh, showing or do, does something well. And it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing, Joy. My phone blew up with other Indian Americans saying, make it clear he doesn't speak for us. Yeah. I mean, to sit him, sit there lecturing a black man about black history was totally uncalled for. And then he didn't have all his historical facts. I mean, the Indian American community in this country holds a huge debt to the African American community. If it weren't for the civil rights movement, the 1965 Immigration Reform Act wouldn't have passed. My parents wouldn't have come to America. Before that, basically, immigrants from Asia and Africa were not allowed to come. It was highly discriminatory. It's really ironic because neither his nor my parents could have come here under the rules before the Civil Rights Act, before that 65 Civil Rights Bill. But he's acting as if the NRA somehow saved African-Americans in the Civil War. The NRA wasn't even formed until 1871. He doesn't know anything about African-American history. He clearly doesn't know the reasons for the Civil War because he thinks the purpose of the Civil War was to get black people the right to uh, bear arms. I mean, what? The last I checked, uh, Dr. King, it was a nonviolent civil rights movement influenced, by the way, by Mahatma Gandhi. And so the fact that maybe some of them had guns to protect themselves, they they weren't advocating the use of guns. They were advocating nonviolence. And here's the point. He's saying, well, oh, any individual should have the right to talk about black history. Of course, everyone should have the right to talk about it. You should have opinions. But they should be informed opinions. Yeah. They should be opinions after you've read history books. And they should be ones not with arrogance, but with humility. Yeah. Especially if you're talking to someone who has actually studied and read that history. Yeah, I guess, you know, he I guess being fluid in your mellifluous ability to speak does not mean that you know what the hell you're talking about. And he clearly did not. And Don was right uh, in that argument. Uh, Congressman Rokana, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate you being here. Up next, Roy Wood Jr., the host of this year's White House Correspondents Dinner, joins me to recap the annual celebration of the First Amendment and America's free press. Be right back. Roy, the podium is yours. I'm going to be fine with your jokes, but I'm not sure about Dark Brandon. Dark Brandon was out in full force this weekend at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner, roasting everyone from Ron DeSantis to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Elon Musk, Tuckums Carlson, and Fox itself. It's great the cable news networks are here tonight. MSNBC owned by NBC Universal. Fox News owned by Dominion Voting Systems. Last year, 
Your favorite Fox News reporters were able to attend because they were fully vaccinated and boosted. This year, with that $787 million settlement, they're here because they couldn't say no to a free meal. And hell, I'd call Fox honest, fair, and truthful. But then I could be sued for defamation. He got some good lines off. The president also poked some fun at himself and his age. Look, I get that age is completely reasonable issue. You might think I don't like Rupert Murdoch. That's simply not true. How could I dislike a guy who makes me look like Harry Styles? <laughs> call me old. I call it being seasoned. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's a man of his prime. <laughs> Biden also struck a serious note, giving a special shout out to Brittany Griner and her wife who were in attendance and calling for the freedom of journalists and other Americans wrongfully detained abroad. Journalism is not a crime. Evan and Austin should be released immediately, along with every other American held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. The event was headlined by The Daily Show's Roy Wood Jr., and he did not hold back. I think the most insulting scandal to fall to the feet of the Biden administration was placed at the feet of our Madam Vice President. The scandal of what does Kamala do? <laughs> which is a disrespectful question. That's a disrespectful question because nobody ever asked that question of the vice president until a woman got the job. I don't know what Mike Pence did. The only thing I know about Mike Pence is that he's really good at playing hide and seek at the Capitol. Drag queens are not at a school to groom your kids. Stop it. And even if they were, most of them kids gonna get shot at school. It ain't no problem. Don't grown pass legislation. There you go. But perhaps the most brutal roast of the night was what Wood said about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And we will have that plus Roy Wood Jr. himself after a quick break. This man bought a Supreme Court justice. Do you understand how rich you have to be to buy a Supreme Court, a black one on top of that? There's only two in stock. And Harlan Crow owns half the inventory. We can all see Clarence Thomas, but he belongs to billionaire Harlan Crow. And that's what an NFT is. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a taste of what Roy Wood Jr. brought to this weekend's White House Correspondents' Dinner. The Daily Show comedian went after everyone, including Biden, Trump, Fox, George Santos, Tuckums, Don Lemon, you name it. Joining me now is Roy Wood Jr., correspondent for The Daily Show and host of this weekend's uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. That was a good set, man. Thank you. You did I a great job. I appreciate that. It was and, good. And thank you for laughing and thank you for understanding everything that I was trying to do because I'm looking around the internet. Not everybody understands. They didn't get it the oscillation of what you're trying to do. I feel like in the modern era, people don't understand comedy anymore. I think people used to understand comedy. And now because you right, even the back and forth about Don Lemon, it's jokes. It's not a beef. But then what people miss because they have an opinion about Don. That's right. You're going to use my joke 
to exactly. push. Yeah, he got him. Right. Get him. But you missed what I was trying to say about making sure that if you're firing a journalist that asks real questions Come on, on air, that you replace him with another black journalist that's asking real questions on air. And we got to see what's going to happen over right. there at that network after post done. Because you Come can on. celebrate the firing, but you also got to be, like they say in boxing, watch for the hook. Watch for the hook. So I mean, what's yeah. going to happen on the other side of that? And where does the network lay on the other side of that? And I think that's what people miss. And I tried to do it with the Charles Barkley yeah, kind of little joke or whatever, but I don't know if people connected that or connected the dots. Or you just, we're in this era of, I either want to cancel you for what you said, right. or I'm going to take what you did and to, amplify, to, to amplify my job. What is your approach to doing this? Because, right, this is a different era for comedians. And, and I know it's, it's challenging. What was your approach uh, to coming up with the set of what you were going to talk about? Because the Clarence Thomas um, joke was brutal. I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was your best. So one. myself and the writers, we wanted to make sure that I'm kind of I felt like I was operating with one hand behind my back because most of that audience only knows me as a daily show correspondent. Right. That ain't my stand up. Right. So I have to introduce you and get you used to me as a stand up. Mm-hmm. And still honor the nature of the roast. I ended up, um, the, the guy I watched, you know, you go back and watch all the old roasts right. to see and study the game tape. But it was said the entertainer during mm. the Bush years, during the GW uh, years, was like, oh, okay, that's, I think that's my pocket. Kind of that pocket. Where yeah. you can joke a little bit, but then you also can kind of sit into something that's more Seth Entertainer's stand up comedy is very conversational and right. chill and it's, Little stress and yeah. very smooth. So I was like, oh, okay, I think that's the way for me to package my material mm-hmm. and then kind of do a joke for y'all and then do a joke to show you who I am. Let me let me play one more. This is a good one. This was about Biden's age. Stay listening. Uh-oh. <laughs> we should be inspired by the events in France. They rioted when the retirement age went up two years to 64. They rioted. Because they didn't want to work till 64. Meanwhile, in America, we have an 80-year-old man begging us for four more years of work. <laughs> begging. Begging. <laughs> Let me finish the job. That's not a campaign slogan. That's a plea. <laughs> Let me finish. Let me finish. But first of all, and yeah. by the way, in France, they're still marching. It's May Day today. They're still it's marching. Not to the over. They're, they're not over. They're not letting them Okay, they're really about their me time. Yeah. Um, it, what do you, the, I think the funniest comedy is about real things. Yeah. It's about real, relatable sort of basic things. And age, whether you want to keep working, whether you want in France, they want their actual personal time back and not to devote themselves to work. Um, is that how you sort of form sort of your best comedy? Yeah. Is real stuff? That's what my actual stand-up is. If you go back and look at any of my hour special, that I've done for Comedy Central. It's all about real issues, and I try to find a different angle or a different prism through which to enter it. So when I sat with the writers for the Correspondence Dinner, I'll go, okay, here's the things I want to talk about. I want to talk about scandals that we that the media covers, right. but then also talk about how the media itself is suffering from its own scandal, from paywalls and funding. There's there layoffs, which creates racial blind spots within your staff, Amen. which means certain stories don't get covered. So... Yep. That's part of what I wanted to talk about and the importance of black media still being yep. relevant because it's their job to cover the blind spots that the mainstream spots yeah. don't always get an opportunity to shine a light on. So from that, now make it funny. Yeah, excellent. Absolutely. And and that's the part. Hats off to that's Roland fun. Martin out there trying to do that black media thing because we, we, nobody Roland does it Martin like Roro. Last one. Uh, grade Joe Biden's uh, joke writers. Oh, A plus. I met two of them and they were like, well, what did you think? I was like, I had to drop two jokes. 
She, the Rupert Murdoch joke. I had a Rupert Murdoch joke. It was joke, good. And I was like, I, I guess I can't do he my took Rupert care Murdoch of joke. He took care yeah, of it. Yeah, it's like Body had a Marjorie Taylor Greene one in there. I'm not going to repeat it on here. You got to find it on the internet. <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, and I, and dude, while Biden is up there, I'm yeah. texting my writers in real time. I'm like, I can't do that joke. Tell the prompter operator, get the Rupert Murdoch joke out of there. <laughs> Take it out. Yeah. I love it. You did an excellent job because it's not an easy job to do to be funny in a room where you're making fun of some of the people in the audience. Brilliantly yeah, done. Yeah, well done, you got to look dead in the eyes. And I'm so happy when I did that Kamala joke. I looked over and she gave me that smirk. She, she, like, mm. she gave you that smile like, because, uh, you know, ooh. she can give me the Mamala <laughs> instead. And you'd be like, uh-uh. She gave me that Mr. Miyagi nine. <laughs> kid, Roy Wood Jr., thank you. <laughs> thank you. That is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.